Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. Well, we've just come through summit week in Europe. First of all, we had the G7 meeting in Cornwall, the first major in-person summit meeting since Joe Biden was elected president of the United States. And that was also attended by leaders of other democratic countries, including Australia. And then many of the G7 leaders traveled to Brussels to attend the NATO meeting. And as always, in the middle of these meetings was the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel. Merkel has been fixture of global politics for a very long time. In her nearly 16 years in office, she has seen off dozens of world leaders, including, for example, four US presidents, four French presidents, five British prime ministers, six Australian PMs and eight Italian PMs. Angela Merkel is due to finish up as chancellor at the German elections in September. She is one of the most consequential leaders of my lifetime and someone that we were very pleased to host at the Lowy Institute in 2014. So I wanted to record an episode of the Director's Chair focusing on Angela Merkel. And I'm delighted that my guest on this episode is one of the world's leading Merkel watchers, Dr. Constanza Stelzenmuller. Constanza is a former journalist in Germany. For nearly two decades, she's been an analyst at several think tanks, including the German Marshall Fund and the Brookings Institution where she serves as a senior fellow and holds the Fritz Stern Chair. Thank you very much, Constanza Stelzenmuller, for joining me from Washington, D.C. for the Director's Chair. Michael, thank you so much for having me on. Constanza, one of my guests on the podcast last year was your Brookings colleague, Dr. Fiona Hill, who was the Russia advisor to President Donald Trump. I asked Fiona how she found joining the Washington policy debate as a foreigner, And Fiona said that coming from a working class family in the north of England, she actually felt she had greater opportunities to participate in the American debate than in her home country. Tell us about your experiences as a German analyst who's now been living in the United States for seven or eight years. So I'm what is known in English as a foreign service brat. My father was in the German foreign service, and this is my third time living in the U.S., I came here in 2014 at the height of the Ukraine crisis, so I'm in my in my eighth year. And I will say this because you know, if you as a foreign service child decide to not go into the foreign service but to become a journalist, the fundamental rule of journalism is distance from power. I think that the Trump era has been a sort of salutary reminder of where we need to stand, and that distance from power is actually an asset for us because it, it signals our independence and it gives us greater credibility. Let me exploit that distance from power and ask you how you would grade the meetings that you've seen from a distance this week. From a long way away, I guess I detected relief that America is back, the transatlantic relationship is on the mend, China's coming up a lot more in conversations, but at the same time, there are still significant differences between allies on many of these issues. What was your assessment of those meetings um, in Cornwall and Brussels, but also what did you think of the Biden-Putin summit meeting in Geneva? Yeah, compared with four years of Trump, the relief of seeing a president who is acting with purpose, with self-discipline, and with a really sort of quite unique personal directness and warmth and empathy even towards adversaries. I mean, that is a huge relief. The Biden team clearly came in extremely well prepared and knowing 
that it would be judged by its first 100 days and its first 200 days. And I think that on the whole, they've gotten a maximum out of this series of meetings from the G7 to the Putin summit. There were no major disasters. And I think a fundament has been laid for the much more complex conversations about the transatlantic relationships and China and Russia and with each other to be held, for which now they have even less time, which is to say until the midterm. So I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to sneer at this. I think that this is a very good basis. But I do, I do sometimes worry, if I'm honest, that beneath all the bonhomie, the, the Europeans haven't quite understood just how existential their stake is in helping an American administration not just succeed in its goals abroad, but also helping it succeed domestically. That's a new thing in transatlantic relations. All right, we'll come back to transatlantic relations in the Merkel context. So I want to come to Chancellor Merkel. You've written an enormous amount about the Chancellor, including an excellent profile of her in the current edition of Foreign Affairs, which I recommend. Let me ask you about her origin story. She's an unusual person to hold the chancellorship, not just because she's female, but because she comes from the East. How have those factors influenced her public life? I think that for an East German woman to suddenly find herself thrust into, well, really being the subject of an acquisition. I mean, we talk about unification of Germany, but really it was a merger on West German terms, right? What the East Germans got to keep was the right to turn right on a red light and, and their traffic signals. Everything else, you know, West German rules applied. And I think she, she, she must have looked at uh, Helmut Kohl, the chancellor, and his, his party, the Christian Democrats, which she ended up joining, and the sort of young warlords, as they were called, who were circling him, wondering, you know, when, when their time for power would come. And I think she must have thought, these West German young men are very entitled. They're very tribal. They've all gone to fraternities, either Catholic or the ones that actually were dueling. And I think the other thing that she must have thought was that these West Germans appeared to be exquisitely professional in managing the status quo, but utterly unable at imagining anything but the status quo. In other words, that the kind of surprise attack that she perpetrated mm. on Helmut Kohl when he was weakened by a party financing scandal, which was indeed scandalous, and where she published a front page op-ed in Germany's conservative paper record, the Frankfurter Allgemeine, calling for his resignation. That was an act of such unheard of audacity that it basically secured her the position of Alpha Wolf in the party in one split second. And I think she sort of, with the clinical eye of the of the scientist, you know, assessed the the structural weaknesses of the power architecture in the party and around the old the old wolf and realized you know that one stroke could bring it all down and that's what she did and that's what got her in line to become chancellor all right so she commits what you call this act of audacious patricide she becomes the alpha wolf as you say subsequently she becomes a, the party leader and then the chancellor and then over the last 15 or 16 years, since she took office in 2005, she's navigated through a number of big crises, the global financial crisis in 2008, the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine, the refugee crisis in 2015, and of course, the COVID pandemic over the past year or two. What has been the secret to her longevity? 
I would say, and it's something I, I describe at somewhat greater length in the article than I think we can lay out here, but it's a combination of uh, an ability to gauge opportunities, her opponents and her friends' weaknesses, an ability when it is necessary to maintain power to stand back from principle or conviction, and then occasionally the ability to surprise everybody with a well-judged act of patricide or with standing up for principles, as she did in several cases, including in the refugee crisis. Mm. And I would say, as she also did, and I, I suspect you might find this more controversial, in the question of the bailouts in, in the Eurozone crisis, where it was Merkel who refused to go along with maximalist demands, both from her own finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble, and from the Nordic and Baltic countries who wanted to see countries like Greece summarily thrown out. And where Merkel essentially said, over my dead body is not going to happen with me. So I think she really sort of kept people on their toes. Part of that was this sort of legendarily opaque method of communication that she has, that Germans now call Merkel, which is, um, you know, confuses people, anesthetizes them. Mm -hmm. And I think behind that is, is a quality that she must have also learned in the GDR, which, which um, I've called elsewhere bland purposefulness. Folks who grew up in authoritarian systems, if they wanted something or did not want to run afoul of authorities, would have to learn to, to be able to veil themselves in an appearance of, of harmlessness and blandness, and then, you know, be able to strike when necessary. And, and I think that's one of her most significant characteristics over time. All right. Well, in terms of striking when necessary, the first crisis in which you mentioned that she stood up for her principles, as you put it, was her decision in 2015 to refuse to close Germany's borders to about a million refugees, mainly from Syria, but also from other Middle Eastern countries. More than five years later, what's the received wisdom on the merits of that decision and the effect that it's had on German politics? So I think we'd have to make a distinction between the received wisdom and what I think is actually mm -hmm. correct. So the received wisdom is, you know, there is a direct causal linear path between the refugee crisis and the meteoric rise of the AFD. Therefore, Merkel is responsible for the fracturing, the fragmentation of the German party system, which means that we may in future find it very hard to achieve two-party government coalitions and may have to go for intrinsically more volatile three-party coalitions. I think that's not correct, actually. Things are, sadly, and maybe this is a very German thing to say, more complicated. If you look at the history of, of right-wing violence in Germany of the last 30 years, the rise of the AFD has much deeper roots than just the refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. The second point that I would have to make, and here you can, I think, more usefully speak about Merkel's responsibility, is that there was always a culturally right-wing extremist fringe in German conservatism from 1945 onwards. And it manifested itself in sort of neo-Nazi parties that never really got beyond the 5% parliamentary th threshold at a national level, sometimes got into regional parliaments, but usually dropped out after one or two legislatures maximum. But Merkel, when she took power in 2005, took a rather largely out of the playbooks of the political power playbooks of Clinton and Tony Blair. By realizing that she would have to modernize her party, she triangulated it towards the middle of the political spectrum, pushing the liberals and the social democrats against the wall, and leaving a political vacuum on her right wing. And it is that vacuum into which the AFD flowed and then, you know, beginning as a sort of Eurosceptical professor's party, but then, you know, uh, gaining oxygen during the refugee crisis. 
But the AFD right now has really, I mean, it's, it's painted itself into a corner strategically. It gains a consistent sort of 10% in the polls, but in reality, it's plateauing. It's stronger in the East, but as a national factor, every single party has said we're not going to cooperate with them. All right, let me ask you about some of Germany's relations with great powers during Merkel's chancellorship. Let's let's start with Russia. At different times, particularly since the 2014 annexation of Crimea, after the assassination attempt on Alexei Navalny last year, Germany has been at odds with Putin. And we remember some remarkable moments, such as that occasion when Putin brought his pet Labrador Connie into a meeting with Merkel, who's known to have a fear of dogs. On the other hand, you do get the sense that there's a sense of respect between the two leaders. Do you think Putin will miss Merkel? I think it's almost insulting to Merkel to suggest that they have things in common. And I, I, I really do mean that. I mean, she speaks fluent Russian and I think got prizes for, for the quality of her Russian in school. But you know, anybody who's seen the famous gif of, of Putin sort of lecturing her and her rolling her eyes and sighing, I think, uh, gets a you know 20-second measure of the relationship. I don't think there's any love lost there at all. And I've had this confirmed from friends who know much better than I do. I think that Putin will have found himself more often than not thwarted by Merkel. And I say this notwithstanding my sort of continuous disapproval, not that it matters, of the, of the pipeline project Nord Stream 2. I mean, let's Keep in mind that that Merkel is the one who held together the the European sanctions consensus after mm-hmm. 2014. I think has organised quite serious support, political support for Ukraine. You know, brought Navalny to Germany for treatment, and something that I've observed. I've been I've been in the room with senior Germans and Russians after during the Ukraine crisis, watching them, and I think. One of the the problems of Russian power elites, one of their great weaknesses, is that they're really quite bad at reading us. I suspect they're bad at reading the Americans. I can tell you that they misread the Germans. They literally weren't listening. And it took them a very long time to understand just how upset the Germans were already about the Georgian War in 2008, and how incandescently angry they were about the annexation of Crimea and proxy war in the Donbass. And it's true that earlier German governments had thought that they could somehow be Russia's transformation helper and, as it were, bring their hairy country cousins you know, in by their paws into sort of a specifically German complacent version of American, you know, uh, post-1990, we've won, you know, everybody now wants to be like us. Yes, Germany succumbed to that complacent illusion hook, line, and sinker. But that's long gone. And I think um, that that started going out the door in 2008 and disappeared in 2014. And it took the Russians several more years to understand with what suspicion they were seen. Now, it's another question whether the Germans and the Merkel government responded with enough forcefulness to things like the Bundestag hack, the federal legislature's uh, servers, five years ago in 2015, whether it responded forcefully enough to things like the, like the open-air execution of a Chechen opposition figure in uh, Germany's Central Park, the Tiergarten. But there again, I think, you know, we've learned the lesson that we need to be much more forceful and much more open about these things. I think it was about 10 days ago that the heads of the two German intelligence services, domestic and, and, and foreign, went in front of TV cameras and said, you know, the Russians and the Chinese are interfering in this election at levels not seen since the Cold War. And, you know, the Russians don't like this at all, and they get very upset about it. 
What about Germany's relationship with China? Is there a sense in which Germany has laboured under an illusion with China that it can have its cake and eat it? Mm -hmm. Well, this is interesting. The case is often made that the Germans are somehow sort of beholden to Russia, that their energy dependent on Russia. And I think that if you look at the numbers, that's actually not true. I don't think we have the time here to go into it. But Germany, I think, is much more vulnerable to its exposure to Chinese trade and investment. We're one of the most globalized nations on the planet, and the trade dependency, uh, the interdependence with China is significant. And if you combine that with the fact that uh, German manufacturing industry, the car industry in particular, I think has, you know, for the longest time resisted uh, key steps of technological transformation in the hopes that they, you know, that they would earn so much on, on the Chinese market that they could somehow, you know, sort of push off the date at which they would have to transform the way that they did business at home. And so I think that is a point where the overt assertiveness of China, not just in its own neighborhood, not just on a global scale, but within Europe and within European member states, is, is now obviously of immense concern to Germany. And I think that the fact that Merkel negotiated this uh, investment agreement with the Chinese as, you know, just as the bell was ringing for the close of the German presidency of the EU uh, at the end of uh, December 2020, I think will be seen in retrospect as a, as a significant political mistake. And of course, it's now basically dead because of the Chinese overplaying their hand and the European Parliament saying, you know, it won't ratify this. And it's unlikely, in fact, that significant member states will ratify it. And there's significant opposition also now in the German legislature, including in Merkel's own party. That's one that we still need to figure out. And it's, I think, going to become a very complicated uh, subject of conversations between America and Germany, and one where the question of who wins the next German election will actually be quite significant. I'll come back to that later if I can. What about the relationship that Merkel has had with US presidents? How difficult did she find the Trump era? How important was she in holding the West together during the Trump period, do you think? I think Merkel was one of those East Germans who, you know, dreamed of of the West and particularly of America uh, behind the wall and for whom America genuinely represented qualities that I think that she, after unification, found lacking in West Germany. A certain sort of entrepreneurial love of freedom, willingness to improvise, a willingness to think big and to be imaginative not things that West Germans were generally known for. And she has also, I think, notably been able to strike not just professional relationships, but, but I think real friendships with sort of quite different characters. George W. Bush, with whom she got along very well. And I think she thought at first that Obama was sort of a you know, shallow, you know, somebody who talked a good line, but probably wasn't going to be impressive in execution. And they became really good friends. And he, he went his on his last trip to Europe, he, he had a long conversation with her, and I think is credited with persuading her to run for a fourth time, not least because of the impending, the looming large shadow of Trump. And, you know, it's generally known just that the, that Trump had a particular animus against Germany and against her, and I think in sort of against professional women in general. And that she found this very difficult. But I would also say that, you know, the, the French, the Brits and the Germans were, were all struggling in different ways and failing in different ways to gain any sort of constructive headway with this uniquely disruptive presidential figure. And I think that, you know, she kept her nerve. 
sort of trying to hold things together in Europe. And that was probably the best she or anybody else could do under the circumstances. You know, you just have to compare the images from, from summits with Trump and, and, the, and the, the images from this week in Europe to see how real the relief is. Remember that famous photograph mm. of the summit with Trump where she's sort of doing this alpha gorilla stance, you know, leaning on the table, leaning forward, mm. and he's leaning back with his arms crossed and she's surrounded by all these other G7 leaders? Mm. That's, you know, no longer necessary. Let me ask you about Merkel's relationship with Israel, if I can. I mentioned earlier that that it was an emotional moment actually at the Institute when we hosted Chancellor Merkel in 2014 because my chairman, Sir Frank Lowy, was a Holocaust survivor. His father was killed at Auschwitz. So to then host a German chancellor was a, a, a really big moment. So tell us about how she's navigated that issue of Germany's relationship with Israel. You know, the relationship with Israel, as, as I think every chancellor in Germany since 1949, beginning with Konrad Anno, has said, is Deutsche Staatsraison. In other words, it's one of the lodestars of German foreign policy, as was reconciliation with France, as was Westbindung, in other words, rooting Germany in the West by making it a member of NATO and the EU, and as was later Ostpolitik, reconciliation and atonement with Eastern Europe, the Willy Brandt going to his knees in Warsaw and detente with the Soviet Union. And I think that was always the line with Israel. I will say one thing, though, that previous German governments, of course, were always quite good at threading the needle between the sort of principled commitment to the security of Israel and schmoozing with the, with the sheiks in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. West German politicians were expert at that and made it seem as though those things balanced out perfectly somehow. And I think the successive Israeli prime ministers will have known how to exploit that for their own interests. But, and as you, I think, is generally known, uh, the, the Germans sell Israelis submarines, or I think mostly give them to them. And these submarines serve a very specific purpose in Israeli military strategy. All that's well known. And the Israelis haven't, as far as I know, been refused any submarines by the Merkel governments. But Trump's sort of disruptive and chaotic Middle East policy, and of course, the uniquely disruptive personality and policies of Benjamin Netanyahu, I think probably pushed Merkel as close to the brink as any German chancellor could go on, on the topic of Israel. But again, she never, I don't think she ever criticized Israeli politics in public. I suspect she was very frank behind closed doors. There's a significant domestic component to this as well, since Germany now has a, a Jewish community of, let me see, I think about 200,000, if I'm not completely mistaken. And we also have a significant Muslim community, which, you know, for the longest time, that was mostly, mostly Turkish guest laborers who we pretended would go back home after they retired. But we've, I think, now all come to understand that we are a country that has become a country of immigration and a country of both Jewish and Muslim immigration. And in the wake of 9-11 and, and Western wars in Afghanistan and in the Middle East, we've also had our share of Islamist extremism. And so that the, the safety of Jewish communities in Germany has also become you know, a sort of prime preoccupation of any German chancellor. I think in, in many ways, the, the, the relationship has become more complicated, but also I think somewhat more, more normal. It's less, you know, it's less hung up, but it's it's still it's still, of course, informed by by the memory of the Holocaust and and World War II, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. 
Let me ask you about COVID. Uh, I think it was generally seen last year that uh, Merkel's governing style was effective. Is that still the case now? How would you grade Merkel's COVID performance, if you like? Uh, well, I actually, um, it's funny you should ask. I, I wrote a first draft of this, of the Merkel essay for foreign affairs in the fall, which on that particular account um, was a lot more positive than when I, when I reconsidered and rewrote it in the spring. And that was because we'd had a, I mean, we'd had an exceptionally calm COVID summer in Germany. While there were horrific death tolls in America and in Britain and France and Italy, in Spain, the Germans somehow were sitting in beer gardens and having a lovely time mm. with almost no restrictions, but moaning about restrictions nonetheless, and were being, you know, getting accolades from, from, from everybody for their wonderful COVID leadership. And then, as I think one has to say was only to be expected, there was a horrific spike in the, in the fall and the winter, and things sort of fell apart, not least because of the impending national elections and the fact that, that the Merkel era was drawing to a close because she wasn't running again for a fifth term. Mm. And she found it very difficult to hold together a national consensus on this, not least because the, the minister presidents of the 16 lender, who are in constitutional terms, responsible and and entitled to make to decision making on this. The Chancellor really here only has a sort of, you know, herding cats role. The minister presidents uh, were keenly interested in representing themselves to their constituents as the ones who were looking out for, you know, the restaurants and the shops and the schools and the parents, and therefore were resisting the Chancellor's fear-mongering. And so I think I think you know there is a great deal of blame to go around, but I'm I don't think it should be laid entirely at her door. That said, you know that's where the buck stops. As you say, the German elections are looming. You mentioned earlier that the future of Germany's relationship with China, to some extent, is up for grabs. Uh, what else is at stake in the elections in September? And depending on whether you get a, a, a CDU. Uh, Chancellor, Mr. Lachette, or uh, Ms. Baerbock, the, the Greens candidate. How much do you think Germany will change in coming years? Well, I mean, you've, you've just said the sort of most obvious thing that we haven't had such a wide open political field, such a fragmented political landscape in, I think, since you know, the beginning of the Republic after World War II. We've never had a situation where we've had to say that a three-way coalition was possibly more likely than a two-way coalition. And I would say it's not completely impossible, based on polling, that you, would, you could see a social democratic chancellor. Mm -hmm. So I think there are three potential candidates, although uh, you know, it, right now, if I've just looked at the polls before, before you called, and right now the, the, the CDU has a lead again, the Christian Democrats of Lushet have a lead again of seven percentage point, which is relatively comfortable over the Greens and the Social Democrats come after. But we've also seen that, that polling and the national mood is exquisitely sensitive to fairly small things. And we're seeing a sort of sour and cantankerous mood in the country. And, and so I would, you know, I'm, I'm not betting on anything because I think lots of things can happen between now and September 26th. Including, I would say to you, you might have a repeat of what happened in 2017, which is five months of coalition negotiations, in which case Angela Merkel would still be chancellor because she'd be the head of a caretaker government. And she might then actually become Germany's longest running chancellor. But then again, I think if you know, there are more sort of external crises, you will find Germans huddling in the middle. The less safe they feel, the more they're going to rush to the middle and the clearer election outcome you will have. And then I think you might have a two-way coalition. 
with either a conservative or a green chancellor, I think that, that one's still out, although a conservative is more likely. Now, what will happen to Germany? The past 30 years of reunified Germany have been a history of undigested domestic and external shocks and of incomplete transformations. And if you, as it were, had to look at the country and say, well, would I do it this way if I had the option of redesigning the way we do things? If I could just, you know, look at this country like a company and, you know, go to a drawing board and say, I'm going to say change this and this and that, and that's not clearly not working, then I think you would be changing quite a lot. I was talking about the, the car industry, the manufacturing industries resisting technological change. I think that we need to discuss how we think about strategy. I think we have to start with the cognitive way we think about our foreign and security policy. In other words, something I think needs to happen with intelligence and foresight. Something needs to be needs to happen in terms of strategic decision making in the nature of a national security council, which we do not have. And I think that we need to have a 360 degree idea of national security, which begins with domestic resilience and ends with the military, and not the sort of disjointed, fragmented landscape that we have now in the way that we think about foreign and security policy. And again, we very much need to include domestic issues into that. One last thing, and I haven't even mentioned here, uh, our energy policy, which is a shambles, and our climate policy, which we like to pride ourselves on, but which in truth is not quite as sort of you know forward-leaning and advanced as, as we would like to think. Let me close on Angela Merkel. You wrote that three of Germany's post-war chancellors deserve to be called great chancellors, Adenauer, Brandt, and Kohl. When Merkel leaves the chancellery, in September, if, if indeed she does so, do you think she deserves to be remembered as the fourth great chancellor? The thing about the three men you just named is that in terms of personal ethics and character, they were all dodgy, right? I mean, my dad was a junior speechwriter for Willy Brandt back in the day uh, when Willy Brandt was chancellor and uh, there was already very much a sense of Götterdämmung in the chancery. And the, this East German spy, Guillaume, over whom Brandt finally had to resign, was slinking around you know, at all times of day and night. And it was well known at the time that you didn't put important decisions in front of Philippe Brandt after 5pm. He had a serious alcohol problem. Probably all of them were womanizers. And um, you know, Schroeder went off to join the board of Gazbom a day after relinquishing the chancery to, to Angela Merkel. And I think it has to be said, in terms of character, uh, integrity, personal probity, Angela Merkel really stands out in the most positive way. And frankly, I'd like to call that great. That aspect of her tenure will, will last. I think we also have to be grateful to her for steering us through not just Germany, but Europe through these crises. And I think many, many, many times holding together a Europe even a German political landscape and a transatlantic relationship that was, you know, on the verge of exploding. Those in the sort of male pantheon that you've just listed and that I listed in my piece don't count as sort of monumental achievements like reunification or introducing the euro. But in a time where the crisis is the new normal, I think mm. they are significant achievements. Mm. The one thing that she didn't do, and that to me is my most severe criticism, is to tell the country that what we have now, the status quo, isn't good enough. The status quo in domestic policies, in foreign and security policies, needs to be pushed forward for us to remain a stable 
and, and secure country, a good ally and a good European neighbor. And that will be the task of her successor, whoever that is. Well, Henry Kissinger famously once asked out of frustration, if I want to speak to Europe, who do I call? And over the past 16 years, if you wanted to speak to Europe, your best shot was probably to call Angela Merkel. So thank you, Constanza Stelzenmuller, for telling us about Angela Merkel, for explaining how she managed to remain so central to European and world developments for so long, and for giving us your assessment of her career. There will be a lot more of these career assessments, of course, as we approach September when Merkel is due to leave office. And we look forward to reading your analysis for the Brookings Institution and in the pages of newspapers and journals such as Foreign Affairs. Thank you very much, Constanza Stelzenmuller, for speaking with me today from Washington, D.C. on the Director's Chair. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. See you soon in Washington or in Australia or somewhere else, I'm sure. Maybe at the next Munich Security Conference. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair. 